So, we're doing things slightly differently today. Um, we're usually quite an interactive um, back and forth discussion for sort of 20, 25 minutes. Um, but actually, during the month of October, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. Um, we're going to be a little more serious and a little bit more talky. Yeah, right. Um, but we're going to be doing, during the month of October, we're going to be doing um, a little four-part series about sex. Oh, are we recording, by the way? Perfect. Lovely. Um, so we're going to be doing a four-part series about sex. If it's your first time here, welcome. It's really lovely to have you here. Here we go. It's going to be good. You're in for a treat. Um, and actually, it's going to be looking a little bit different to usual. It'll be a little bit of a longer talk from the front um, with a little bit less back and forth. There'll still be some, um, but not as much as we usually do. Um, now, in our experience, and um, I know in many of your experiences, um, this topic hasn't always been done particularly well, sensitively or thoughtfully in churches over the years, and our hope during October is not to join that camp. Um, we're going to be doing four different talks during October on four different core aspects of faith. And then we're going to be applying that thinking and that theology to our sexuality. Um, kind of having sex as the lens through which we look at these different topics. So week one today, we'll be looking at shame. Then next week, Daniel will be talking about cultural narratives. Um, then we're going to be looking at our deepest needs and desires as humans. And we're going to end October with looking at our purpose and what story is our life telling. Now, any of these topics you could look at and we could unpack and we could apply it to money or power or work or our household or family life. Um, and obviously, where appropriate, please apply that to those situations. Um, but we're going to be specifically applying them to our sexuality and we're keen to do so because... Well, we haven't really talked about it much. Over We've been a, a church for five and a half years, and we haven't really talked about sex at all. Um, and we're really keen to lay a foundation upon which we can grow and mature. Now, um, I just want to acknowledge that um, first and foremost, we are all coming into this space with different experiences, different thoughts and emotions, different theologies probably, and different situations or people who have shaped and formed us as humans, and that includes sexually. And what we'll be covering over the next month affects all of us in this room. In one way or another, whether you're married, divorced, single, dating, celibate, whatever age or gender you are. And so I just want to say that however you've walked in this afternoon, you're really welcome here. Whatever you've brought in with you, heavy or light, when it comes to sex, you're really welcome here. If you've been married since you were 16, you're really welcome here. If you've been divorced several times, you are welcome here. If you've been perpetually sexually active or never sexually active, you're really welcome here. If you've been sexually assaulted, you're welcome here. And if you've only ever known a loving sexual relationship, you're really welcome here. From our experience and talking to many of you already, um, we're really aware of how sensitive and potentially painful a topic this could be for many of us. 
And before all else, our desire is that this is a safe, non-judgmental space where people can find freedom and thriving, for goodness sake. As we would hope for in any aspect of life, um, but especially in the area of sex. Um, and crucially, this is not going to be a series of should or shouldn't be doing. Um, that is not what we're going to be doing this month. And so if you're feeling particularly anxious right now, if that's you, we see you. And during this whole series, we've really tried to write sensitively. You'll notice I'm reading word for word because we've really tried to write sensitively um, and with you in mind. So I hope that as the series goes on, you feel um, less anxious and more empowered as the month goes on. Um, now, we're also aware, this is a long intro, but I'm gonna, it's really important that we say all of this to kind of prep the ground. So we're also aware that many of you may have come here with various expectations of what we will or won't say during this series um, and what we will or won't cover. Um, but just to say that over the next month, we're going to be sharing what we feel God has laid on our heart for this community. So please, we encourage you to put those expectations aside and simply come with open ears and hearts to what is being said. We really hope that this series is helpful. And hopefully, if you've been in churches before, um, a little bit different to stuff that you might be expecting from a sex series. Um, and we're quite looking forward to that, to be honest. Um, and finally, as we've been preparing for this series, we've heard um, a couple of times, like, why on earth would you go there? Like, why would you bring this up? Um, it's a real minefield, like you could really hurt people. Um, and our response is, yeah, this topic is a minefield, um, but that's why we're going there, because we know that most of us here are walking around with limps and scars um, because we've been hurt by this minefield. Um, and we know that the church at large has often been either unhelpfully silent or unhelpfully vocal on this subject. Um, and we believe that God wants to meet us here and do some really beautiful healing and setting free for us this month over the coming weeks, um, if we want him to, because it's a two-way thing, right? Um, now, as I said earlier, usually the kids um, charge back in at some inopportune moment towards the end. Um, but just to say that that won't be happening today. Um, so the kids are going to stay out over in the hall um, and um, we will be joining them um, over in the hall afterwards um, at the end. And that's just to enable us to reflect a little bit about what's going on, what's being said, to be able to flesh it out a little bit more um, and to have enough kind of uninterrupted time at the end to pray and respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing. Um, so they will be um, staying over there. And if you have a child over there at 5.30, it would be wonderful to go and get them. All right, let's get cracking. Who wants to see a really cute video of a small puppy? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say no to that. Um, you're going to see one anyway, even if you don't. Um, this is our Whippet Ralph as a puppy. He's like seven times bigger now. Um, have you got a video? Yeah. This is our... Oh, oh Daniel, you've let me down. <laughs> Trust me, we've got a really cute dog. Hello. Hey. Can everyone see that? 
This is our little puppy, Ralph. He's a whippet. He's very cute. Um, and he's so tiny there. He's much bigger now. Um, now, anyone who has looked after a dog will know that they eat literally anything, right? Yes. Um, and Ralph is no exception. Uh, one day, uh, a few weeks after we got him, we were out on a walk around the block and, like, before we had a chance to act, he scoffed another animal's excrement. And we were, <laughs> right? And so we were like, ah, no, Ralph, like, don't do that. That's, that's not good. Come on, don't do it. And he looked at me like, what? What's wrong with that? Then two minutes later, again, we're like, Ralph, no, like, please stop eating the poo. And he looked at us with this little bit of guilt in his eyes, like, you said this last time, ah. Um, and then again, honestly, we went around the block four or five times. He just gave me, another one, another one. Um, and each time, we'd be like, Ralph, please. And as the walk went on, he would look at us with his puppy dog eyes, all guilty, and be like, sorry, I did the bad thing. Um, then, um, when we got home, uh, he merrily walked into the living room and promptly vomited all over. <laughs> Love owning a dog. Um, now, in that moment, he had made the connection, I'm sure. He looked at us ashamed, like, oh, I'm sorry. He looked at us and he kind of went, I am the bad thing, aren't I? Like, Ro Ralph, Rolf? <laughs> I don't even know my own dog. Ralph uh, did something, he reaped the consequences, and then left unchecked. That sort of thinking can really lead to this feeling of owning that, that is shame, can't it? Like, is Ralph a bad dog? Of course not. But we're going to be looking at shame today because we can so easily link our actions to our identity, right? Like how Ralph's actions could lead to the questioning of his goodness or his badness, right? One of my best friends is a consultant psychiatrist, and um, I remember her mentioning when our eldest was a toddler um, that at the age of two, our daughter was figuring out whether she was fundamentally good or bad. That's what happens in a two-year-old brain. <sighs> Mildly terrifying. Um, but when you consider, at the age of two, the amount of, no, don't touch that, oh, don't do that, oh, that's not right, don't put that down, no, stop it, that goes on, it's only like a hop and a jump to go from, I do bad things, to, I am a bad person. Now, some of us can instantly understand or appreciate why when we're doing a series about sex and sexuality as the application lens, we would start off by talking about shame. But some of us actually may have no idea why this would be on our radar, let alone first on the list of what we'd look at in this series. And so this is for you. Whether it's about how we spend our money, how we treat other people, our work ethic, whatever it is, shame has the potential to sneak in and to wreak havoc into every area of life. Europe's Journal of Psychology report that there is a really strong negative correlation between shame and self-esteem. So high sense, of self, uh, high sense of shame, low sense of self-esteem. 
The Journal of Counseling and Development discussed the strong interplay between shame and depression, harsh self-critique, and something called maladaptive perfectionism, and that is the unhealthy setting of unrealistic standards. Research from the Baylor University in Texas highlighted the link between shame and an increase in anxiety disorders. And there's a systematic review in the Clinical Psychology Review indicating that the correlation, indicated the correlation between shame and self-harming behaviours. Like, the list could go on. And so when we consider this, shame leading to low self-esteem, depression, anxiety and self-harm and we consider our sexuality and our sexual lives, it's like, man alive. Because if we have somehow attached shame somewhere in our sexual story, there too lies the potential for all the rest. Shame is a really powerful force in our lives. It can dominate our thinking, our feelings, and our actions. Shame is powerful, and it's everywhere and so we want to take a day today to look at it we could have done a whole series on shame like I had to whittle it down a lot we could honestly um but I thought we would start by watching uh, a little two minute video by a woman called Brene Brown some of you may have heard of her um, she's an American researcher who has spent the last 20 years researching and teaching on courage vulnerability shame and empathy Um, And here's a little snippet on what she has to say about shame and vulnerability. Um, Heads up, she talks fairly fast, so prick your ears up and let's crack on. Shame is the gremlin who says, never good enough. And if you can talk it out of that one, who do you think you are? The thing to understand about shame is it's not guilt. Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. And here's what you even need to know more. Guilt, inversely correlated with those things. Shame for women is this web of unattainable, conflicting, competing expectations about who we're supposed to be. For men, shame is not a bunch of competing, conflicting expectations. Shame is one do not be perceived as what? Weak. But the truth is, vulnerability is not weakness. I define vulnerability as emotional risk, exposure, uncertainty. It fuels our daily lives. And I've come to the belief, this is my 12th year doing this research, that vulnerability is our most accurate measurement of courage. If we're gonna find our way back to each other, we have to understand and know empathy because empathy is the antidote to shame. If you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially, secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. The two most powerful words when we're in struggle, me too. If we're going to find our way back to each other, Vulnerability is going to be that path. Cheers, Brene. Um, that was part of her, uh, one of her TED Talks. Um, the whole TED Talk is available to watch. I'd recommend it. 
that's really insightful, kind of gave me a fire in the belly when I read, watched it. Um, but do you hear what she says there about how guilt is action-based, but shame is person-based? I.e. guilt is I did a bad thing, and shame is I am a bad person. And um, I love what she said about the, do we call them Petri dishes here? Yeah, I was a bit put off by Petri dish. Um, but did you catch that? Um, that for shame to thrive, it needs three things. It needs secrecy, silence, and judgment. Hence us addressing it today. Because we, we do not want any of that here. Again, for some of us here, the topic of shame is so tangible and we can really easily identify shame as part of how we're walking around in the world. But for some of us, and I'm genuinely really pleased if this is you, you're not actually walking around with loads of shame. That really is awesome and a real blessing. And today it's not about making people feel shame un like unnecessarily. Um, but it is identifying that for many of us, we are walking around that way. And actually, this will hopefully um, be helpful in how we can interact with each other and be a more Jesus-centered community. And so whilst Brene identifies researches and talks on shame and vulnerability and empathy in our culture today, I want to ping us right into the Bible um, and look at what God might have to say about the whole thing too. So we're going to be diving in at the beginning of the Bible in the first book called Genesis in chapter 2. Um, this is part of the first big story of the Bible, creation. Um, and we're jumping in where Adam exists and he is alone in the Garden of Eden. Um, we're reading a fair chunk this afternoon because um, we're going to be dipping in and out of this story over the next month. And it says this. Oh, that is small writing. I'll read it as well anyway. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make an ally suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable ally was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out from the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now... There's loads that you could unpack. There's loads of questions that bubble to the surface with a whole host of these creation, this, with a whole host of it from this creation story. Um, and there are some fundamental things that we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. But for this week, I just want to settle on that final sentence. In chapter two of the Bible, we find this sentence: Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They were utterly vulnerable with each other. That's what nakedness means. They laid themselves bare. There were no 
hidden places. There were no secrets. They were totally open and vulnerable. And they felt no shame. Before we broke the world by choosing our own path and our own way instead of with God, before we broke the world, we could stand before each other as humanity completely vulnerable and feel totally unashamed. This is how God designed us to interact. To interact vulnerably, open-handedly, without secrets, silence or judgment, without shame. And this story about Adam and Eve is the story of humanity. This story of how we were designed and created to interact and live is our story too. And somehow, somewhere on the path of walking away from God and doing life on our own terms, we've gone from living life totally openly and unashamed to taking all the stuff of life, stuff that we've done and that's been done to us, And we've started wearing that stuff as part of our identity, as who we are. We are the poor decisions that we've made. We are guilty parenting stuff. We are the missed expectations. We are weak. The stuff someone did to us is who we are now. It wouldn't have happened if I was stronger, if I was different or more capable. Ralph did a bad thing by eating poo off the pavement. And he, had, he reaped the consequences of that eating by vomiting on our carpet. Ralph is a bad dog. You see, an action, consequence, identity. And the first thing I want to say today is that we were not designed to live with shame or with the worst thing we've done or has been done to us as our identity. We were not created with or in shame. The Bible is really clear throughout Scripture that we we are created to live full, fruitful lives free from shame. This is not how we're designed to be. But I'm sure that many of us have been thinking about what shame looks like for us or identifying something we might be carrying. And if the Bible says we're not designed to be ashamed, but realistically many of us can identify some way in which we're living in shame, what do you do with that? Like, what now? What does the Bible have to say about that discrepancy? Now, I think that the Bible has a term that's used to describe the removal of shame. Can anyone hazard a guess as to what this might be? Can't be too wrong. Hmm? Grace? Yeah? Forgiveness? Anyone else want to hazard a guess? What word can be described to you to say the removal of shame? Redemption. All right. I'm going to give Diane 50 points because I've got the word forgiveness written down here. Way, But you're right. Great. All of it rolled into one. Um, and so 
let's do a bit of word association. We're going to be talking about forgiveness for the second part of this talk. Um, and so I say forgiveness, you say, we did this with, pardon? Free. Brilliant. I say forgiveness, you say? Brilliant. Yeah, I like it. I say forgiveness, you say? Courage. All right. I say forgiveness, and you say? Jesus. One more. I say forgiveness, you say? Debt free. All right. You guys win. I'm done. That's great. No, um, I just wanted to do that exercise simply to put some language to um, what we actually mean or how we might describe things when we, sit, when we talk about forgiveness. Because I think that often we can boil down forgiveness, intentionally or not, down to this kind of momentary binary transaction. Like, I did something bad. Let it go. Let me off the hook. Cheers. Now, Whilst that's not wrong per se, I think it's only part of the picture. It's like a facet of a diamond or like level one of the forgiveness ladder. Um, maybe that might be how we would explain forgiveness to a toddler. Um, but we're talking about shame and in a bit looking at sex. And so toddler definitions are not going to cut it off. I did a bad thing. Cheers. Let it go. Off the hook. We need to have a more robust, nuanced, helpful and deep understanding of forgiveness in order for it to actually work in the real world we live. And luckily, the Bible does just that. Um, now, there are many beautiful ways in which God's definition of forgiveness is portrayed in the Bible. And we don't have time to unpack all of them this afternoon. Um, and so I just wanted to hone in on a couple of them, on two of them, which I think are particularly pertinent when we're considering shame as a topic and when we're applying them to sex. And so, the first. Is everyone with me still? You need to stand up and jump around. We're good. So the first is forgiveness as a removal or a release. There's um, a brilliant example of this in a story we find in one of the biographies of Jesus's life in um, a book called Mark in chapter two. Um, there's this moment when Jesus is teaching in someone's house and it is rammed, absolutely chocked full of people. There are so many people, no one else can fit into the house. And these four guys rock up carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They're hoping to see Jesus. They've heard that he heals people um, and they want to get their friend to Jesus. Um, now, there's literally no room in the house whatsoever. There's no way of squeezing in through the doors. Um, if you've ever seen them, people, it was, um, I think it's in China on the trains when they're literally like, it's rush hour. Go, go, go. Like, there's no. There's not even room to squeeze a paralyzed man in. Um, and so their friends, they go to the roof of the house, they dig through it, and they lower the paralyzed man down in front of Jesus. Can you imagine what carnage that would have been? Just for a moment, how ridiculous that seems. Anyway, but this is the moment that we want to take notice of. Because Jesus is standing, and he's teaching, and this man is lowered in front of him. And he says... My child, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. Hmm. Right here, clear as day, 
Jesus is demonstrating forgiveness as a removal or a release from captivity. A removal of the thing that's debilitating him and in that day was reducing his humanity. It was a release from humiliation that he would have had of being carried everywhere and unable to fend for himself. Jesus forgives him and he sets him free. Imagine you're carrying like a massive rock around with you and God comes and takes it off you. God comes and forgives you that rock. You are released from carrying that rock with you anymore. Now, you may still bear the consequences of having carried that rock for far too long. But you are no longer identified as someone who carries it. So you may still have sore shoulders, a wonky back. You might need physio. But you are crucially not holding that rock anymore. Does that Does that make sense? When Jesus talks about forgiveness, he often talks in terms of what are you carrying around which is undermining your humanity and making your life miserable? Please, can I take that off you? Please, can I forgive you that thing? And I'm sure we only have to think half a minute to identify stuff that we're carrying around with us that we find shameful, so we hide, so we're getting wonky backs and sore shoulders because we're carrying it. Whether it's the stupid stuff we've done and the difficulty of living with those consequences, the guilt and the shame of the damage that we've done to the world or ourselves, or maybe it applies to the damage that has been done to us the pain and the abuse that has been put on us, the burdens that we've been given by other people. When Jesus talks about forgiveness, it's really helpful for us to remember that forgiveness looks like the removal or the release from the things which are compromising our humanity and stopping us living as we were designed to live. Forgiveness is not just about a guilty conscience, but about the removal of our burdens and the restoration of our humanity. So number one, forgiveness as a removal or a release. Number two, this is a bit of a left field one. Forgiveness as a covering or a covering over. What? Um, Now, this one feels a little bit left field for us, I think, and particularly when we think of that kind of momentary binary transaction, forgiveness. I said, sorry, you've let me off. Um, But even when we're thinking about removal or release as forgiveness, um, but forgiveness as a covering over. So let me unpack that one for you. We first see this directly after that scene in the garden that we read earlier, where Adam and Eve, sorry, Adam and his wife, um, were naked and they felt no shame. We then, immediately after this moment, we see these people then deciding to follow their own wisdom and choose life on their own terms rather than in God's love and his design. And it says, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Adam and his wife, they chose life on their own terms. 
and shame suddenly had a place at the table. They immediately hide away and they try to kind of cobble together something, like anything, to cover their nakedness. They sew fig leaves together. I mean, I don't know about you, but wearing leaves, like, I would not feel safe with uh, terrible, mushable clothing. Um, What Adam and Eve came up with to cover their own shame was rubbish. But the beautiful thing is that when they tell God of their nakedness and their shame, God's God's impulse is to move towards them. And instead of seeing them and their, frankly, rubbish covering and letting them be, the story goes on and we see God covering Adam and Eve with animal skins. Much sturdier, much more appropriate, better, long-lasting clothing. In this story, we see God moving towards Adam and Eve in their nakedness and their shame and covering it over. As we said earlier, this um, picture in the garden at the beginning of the Bible, it rattles down through the ages of humanity. So in our nakedness and shame, we hide And we cobble together anything to kind of roughshod cover ourselves. It's inadequate, it's ineffective, and it's certainly not long-term. But if we come to God, he responds by covering up our nakedness and restoring our dignity. As the story of the Bible unfolds, this idea of covering over starts kind of holding hands with the idea of forgiveness. Um, It runs the length of the Bible um, from Adam and Eve in chapter 3 throughout the Old Testament, which is pre-Jesus. Forgiveness is often spoken about as God covering over humanity's sin and shame. And even at the end of the Bible, in a book called Revelation, the language that's used is of God coming, God gathering the nations, and covering their shame. Forgiveness and covering over come hand in hand. Because when we allow God to see our nakedness, our shame, our brokenness, we enable him to cover us, to bring back our dignity, to comfort us and to equip us for living in the world with clothing that's fit for purpose. We allow him to forgive us our shame. God is team humanity. Like he is not repulsed by us. He doesn't ask us to hide ourselves or sort ourselves out before we come to him. He moves towards us to give us the gift of dignity through forgiveness. Forgiveness is so much more than being let off the bad things that we do. Forgiveness as removal or release and forgiveness as covering over speaks to shame much more clearly. It it means the removal of guilt and shame and the granting of identity and dignity. And the reason that we want to talk really clearly and differently about forgiveness today is because we acknowledge that it's not something that the church has often chosen as a definition of forgiveness. In fact, often we've experienced and we've heard the church has done just the opposite in the past. 
Don't bring your shame. Sort yourself out. Cover yourself over. Learn how to carry that before God will even look at you, let alone accept you. And we believe that's fundamentally untrue. That, in fact, God's heart is towards those who are hurting in this broken world and that shame is one of the great big enemies of human flourishing. And so, in response, let's apply this to sex. Honestly, I think that's what's needed in this moment um, as a church leader speaking in a church about sex is an apology to reset the culture of sex and church. In order to be open and honest and vulnerable and speak out loud some of the stuff that has been silent, secret or judged. We're, um, Daniel and I, we're really genuinely upset and actually as we've walked this path personally and with other people, um, we're pretty angry actually um, by the culture of shame that has been allowed to grow and thrive within the church in the area of sexuality. In the way that the church at large has spoken about sex and the expectations it's laid on people and then the consequent ways it has dealt with people when they've lot not lived up to those behavioral expectations. In the way that the church has not been a Jesus-shaped community when it comes to speaking into and caring for people in the area of sex. Now, um, we obviously don't speak um, for the whole church or any individuals other than ourselves, um, but we are church leaders, and so we wanted to take some time Um, to say that we're really sorry. Um, And I've got a list of things that we're sorry for that I'm going to go through in just a second. If you've ever felt unable to share your sexual story for shame or fear of judgment, if you've felt silenced by expectation and a lack of vulnerability in the church, then we're really sorry. If you've ever felt unwelcome in church, because of something that's happened in your sexual history, we're really sorry. If virginity until marriage has been held as the epitome of Christian living and you didn't have a choice in the matter because it was taken from you and you felt like an outsider in church as a consequence, I'm really sorry. If the church has been silent or absent in helping you with the difficult consequences of your sexual choices or any violation that's happened to you, we're really sorry. If the church has pushed marriage up onto a pedestal and actually marriage has disappointed or hurt you, we're really sorry. If virginity until marriage is all you were taught in church and actually sex within marriage has been a really tricky and painful navigation, we're really sorry. If the church has perpetuated the shame narrative of being silent and judgmental, of putting conflicting expectations on people or requiring you to be strong, then we're really sorry. If you have ever felt unwelcome or actively persecuted or oppressed by the church because you have same-sex attraction, we're really sorry. 
If you have ever been made to feel like half a person because you're single, or if you've ever been ill-supported or ill-loved because you're single, then we're really sorry. And if you have ever been led by church leaders who have held up sexual expectations that they have then violated, we're really sorry. We acknowledge that as, as the church, we've missed the mark in so many ways when it comes to talking about and discipling in the realm of sex. And it's right that we apologize for how the church has often got this so wrong by not listening and by oversimplifying. But we also want to say that God has a beautiful vision for thriving and flourishing human sexuality. That far from being the morality police, at God's heart, he wants every single one of us to live rich and fulfilling lives, and that includes sexually. We're going to be spending the next three weeks unpacking more of that picture and God's desire for us. But we can't go there effectively without dealing with the massive hurdle or barrier that is shame. And so we're going to take some time now to respond. We want this to be um, a safe environment for all of us. So we're going to be responding collectively. Um, Lauren and George around? Yeah, Lauren, if you wouldn't mind. Um, And I'd, I'd love for all of us, if you can, to stand, if that's all right. Um, And um, I'd really love for all of us, as far as you feel comfortable, to close your eyes. um, Because this is a moment for us to do business with God. A God who moves towards us as we show him our nakedness and our shame. invite Holy Spirit will you come will you move among us that we may live free from shame those um, particular apologies were something that hit home for you that you've experienced within the church around your sexuality and your sexual history um, I'd really like to pray with you this afternoon so if you want to hold out your hands we want that shame to be lifted God will you come and will you forgive us will you remove the stuff that we're carrying, the ways in which our bodies are aching from what we hold, will you come and release us? 
God, will you come and cover us over with your good clothing of dignity and of life. Holy Spirit, come. Spirit, will you come and would you free us today?
also a wonderful moment for us to engage with the story of God and humanity throughout the ages um, by way of communion. So this is us um, taking a moment to identify ourselves with the story of Jesus, um, to step into that story and say, yes, I want your freedom, I want your dignity, I want the humanity that you bring. And so if that's you today, we've got some bread and some squash at the back um, as representatives of God's body and blood um, shed for us. And so if you would like to, please feel free to go and take communion um, at the back as Lauren just sings over us um, and we continue to pray in this moment.